0: to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness.
1: And I'm Anne Roby, an HR executive and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture.
0: So we have another guest today that we are really, really excited about. We are joined today by Nichelle Tramble Spellman, who is a good friend of Anne's. They've known each other since their teenage years. And when Anne started telling me about Michelle, she said the magic words, which were, she was a writer for The Good Wife, which is my all-time <laughs> favorite, favorite, favorite show. <laughs> so I'd heard people raving about The Good Wife. I hadn't watched it. I was recording it. And we had a snow day here in Raleigh. And I literally binge watched the entire first season of The Good Wife in one day. And so I'm having a little fangirl thing going on here, just talking to somebody who was <laughs> part of The Good Wife. Anne has lots of <laughs> other great stories about Michelle. Michelle will have all kinds of great things to share with us. And I'm going to let Anne do the official introduction.
1: Since I have known Nichelle for so long, because we went to different middle schools and different high schools, but we had lots of friends in common. Yes. And so what I did this morning, because, you know, I, I spend hours and weeks and weeks researching <laughs> so literally just this morning, hot off the presses. And Nichelle hasn't heard this yet. So oh my God. <laughs> here it comes. I asked a couple of our mutual friends what they would say about you. So here's one of my favorites from the high school days. What comes to my mind is this. Shelly always has been a storyteller. Back in high school, she was notorious for making matches. And since she had such a variety of friends, she would go up to the best looking guy at a party and start talking to him to get an idea of the type of girl he was looking for. And then she would start (laughs) describing one of us. Describing us so well that we ourselves wouldn't recognize ourselves. (laughs) I love that story. Uh, One other person said, She's the only person I know who didn't have a plan B. Her intent was always to be a writer, no matter how many crappy jobs she had along the way. And no matter how tight money was, she just kept pushing. And literally two minutes ago, this is what came in. I remember storyboards, a thirst for a juicy plot, insatiable General Hospital obsession, trips to San Jose, riding in the bay, cocktail parties, et cetera, et cetera. She is an amazing person. Oh, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention her love for fashion and interior design. She has a slight <laughs> addiction to Zillow. <laughs> I know who that came from. Hey, Deani. I love we're starting with giggles. This is starting off the right way already. (laughs) So I'm so excited to have you here. And, you know, our our paths have gone different directions and and yet we still crisscross every once in a while. And I'm just so super excited to have you here. And while we just got to hear from some of your great friends you've known forever, I'd love to hear a little bit about you and your story. And so, Please introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about your journey. I know there's been ups and downs and twists and
2: turns and please let us know uh what's been going on in your world. Oh my goodness, it's so funny to hear those stories because I'd forgotten about them and it <laughs> was true. It was a perilous journey financially to being a uh, writer. You know, it was feast or famine. I did so much freelance writing and short story writing and picking up assignments here and there and I always took what my mom called even though I was a grown woman, she did not respect the jobs that I took <laughs> to make a living. So she used to call them my after school jobs. Even I was like 30 <laughs> because they weren't challenging me because I didn't want anything that I was attached to in any way because it was it, I didn't want it to interfere with my pursuit of being a working writer. So, you know, there were years in the Bay Area where I rented a room and had my dog and, you know, would work as a receptionist and preferred receptionist jobs where the reception desk was out near the elevator and the rest of the office was behind (laughs) doors so I could work on my novel all day. And actually, those were easy to find in San Francisco in the 80s and 90s when I was on tour for the first novel. My third grade teacher showed up and it was so lovely to see her, but she reminded me that for show and tell, I used to bring stories. Remember the little brown pieces of paper that we used to work on in elementary school? And I'd get a, a little pile of them and staple the sides like it was a book and make my little cover. And then, wow, you know, the kids were a captive audience. They couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> they had just sit there and listen to my ramblings. You know, I just think it was always something that I wanted to do. And I was very single-minded about pursuing a writing career. Even after my first novel came out and my whole family went to a reading at Cody's in Berkeley, I missed that bookstore. And one of my relatives said, this is so nice that you did this. So now you could be a teacher. you know."
0: <laughs> and you're like, <laughs> you're not, so, you're missing the point. It
2: so, <laughs> and it was so out of the ordinary to the family that they were afraid for me. They were like, okay, safety net, safety net, what's going to be the safety net? I just love hearing
1: that the pieces of you would do anything in order to to really get to spend time on your writing. And how sweet your third grade teacher came and yeah. shared that memory with you.
2: It was really nice to see her and I recognized her. Oh. It was very cute because I was reading and I looked up and I was like, oh that woman was so familiar. And then there's just something about her sweet face and then the second time I looked up she was crying and I was like, I Oh my God, that's my third grade teacher. She was just so excited because she remembered that I wanted to be a writer as a little girl.
0: I love this image that I'm getting of this little wee five year old kindergartner with their brown paper pieces of paper stapled together into a little book. And how remarkable it is. So many people I know, myself included, had no idea what we wanted to do and gravitated towards things where we could always get a job, or it was practical, or we thought we were interested in it, and then it didn't really turn out quite to be what was expected. And I'm always so awestruck when I meet somebody that has always known what they wanted and were willing to sacrifice right, to really honor that that whisper or that drive. It sounds like for you, it wasn't a whisper. It was a very loud, booming voice saying, I'm going to be a writer. And I just, I find that so awe-inspiring to talk to people and to talk to you where not only did you know, but you did what it took to get there.
2: I don't even really know where it was born from. My grandparents were in North Oakland and as a child, That house was, of course, in Oakland, but inside the walls of it, it was Louisiana. So there was this very interesting mix for me in that I was in this environment that was very California, very Northern California at that, but I still felt like Louisiana was my home, even though I had never spent significant time there because it was so alive with my grandparents and the family. But my grandmother in particular was just a master of the Southern tradition of oral storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's where the love of story became so natural because she was so great. And she was the master of scary stories because her trick was that she would started off like just a regular conversation and before you knew it you were wrapped into this terrifying story so she'd go oh oh what was that thing what did i go pick up at the store the other other day and she called my green daddy by his last name. And she'd go, Coleman, what was, you know, and he was on to it. And we were all going, oh, well, what did you go get? And then she'd say, oh, I went and, you know, I picked up something for dinner. And on the way back, I saw someone I knew and I gave him a ride. Of course, it would end up being a ghost. But you were <laughs> in the story at that point, And then it's just like then the hair on the back of your neck starts to stand up. And she was so good at like drawing you in and then weaving the swirls and that feel like it came from that because there was no one else that was a physical writer
1: well I I mean what an amazing and inspirational way to sort of like get your own future craft right and just hearing it kind of at the knees of grandma I think that's amazing yeah Yeah. what is your process like now for when you are either writing for a show or you have a couple novels as well so what does your process look like
2: Well, it's different for everything, you know, for the novels, it's singular. It was just me and writing alone and doing exactly what I wanted to do. Being on staff in a room, it's a collaboration. You know, there's a showrunner that you're working for and your job is to mimic that voice as one of their writers. And then as the showrunner creator of Truth Be Told, then that's different. So it's, it's, it's a different thing for each one with Truth Be Told, being a showrunner is like the equivalent is sort of being a general or ceo you're just in charge of everything and it's a it's a it's a really big transition from being a writer on staff to being in charge of the whole ship and it becomes almost less about writing and more about management Mm -hmm. During the day, I may be in the writer's room and we may be breaking story and then I have to peel away to deal with casting or the hiring of the production team or questions about props or paint colors on the backsplash of Poppy's Kitchen. And you just think, I did not know there were so many questions I could be (laughs) asked in one day. (laughs) I did not know that was possible.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about Truth Be Told, because I think you did the exact thing that your grandmother used to do. And that is, it felt like we just got dropped kind of right in the middle of Poppy's story. It's not like there was a big buildup. I believe that book was, uh, that show was created from a book. Is that
2: correct? Yeah, it was based on a novel called Are You Sleeping? And what the process was is general meetings are the normal thing that you do in the TV and film business. And in the film business, the general meetings, you go, you meet people nice and not as much work comes out of them. General meetings in television result in work most of the time. So there was a producer I'd worked with on a previous project while I was on Justified and she switched companies and she'd gone over to work at Churnin Entertainment, which was founded by Peter Churnin, who used to run Fox. And I went there just for a general meeting to meet you know, her new colleagues and see what she was up to. And... Um, As I was leaving the meeting, she said, oh, there's a book that I think you might like. It it hasn't been published yet, but take a look at it and let me know if you have a take, if you're interested. That was three Christmases ago. So I took the book home read it over the holiday and then January reached out to her and said, you know, I really think there's something here. I think there's the base for a TV show. Now, what was different is the Poppy Parnell character is a minor character in Are You Sleeping in the Novel? And if I'd followed the novel exactly, which is really good and the author is wonderful, it would have been about the twins and then that would have been a limited series. So, I had the idea, which I took back to Kristen, was to put the podcaster at the center of the story and then that way we could build an anthology series where every season she's dealing with a different mystery, a different story, and then we could bring in new characters. So season one, the actors associated with the mystery are Aaron Paul, Lizzie Kaplan, Elizabeth Perkins, Annabella Shihora, and we had just a, a wonderful cast. So season two, the mystery revolves around Kate Hudson, and we just finished filming about three weeks ago.
0: For our listeners who haven't yet had a chance to watch Truth be told, can you just give a quick synopsis of what season one is about?
2: Yes, it's the Poppy Parnell. Octavia Spencer plays the character of Poppy Parnell, who's a podcaster, who has a history of um, traditional journalism. And she's pretty famous. She's made a really good living. She's also an author. She does speaking engagements the whole nine. And she's doing this kind of fun podcast, just something different. And she sees a story about a young man she wrote about 20 years ago and she believes that her reporting got him tried as an adult. He was accused of murdering someone when he was a teenager. And there's new evidence that makes her question that. And then she's driven by her own guilt that she possibly ruined someone else's life. So she starts to reinvestigate the crime, but she you know, breaks the number one journalism rule. She's too close to it. And it's very, very personal. And so what was interesting to me was beyond a mystery and a procedural was Looking at the effects of crime and trauma and pain through the families. So what is generational trauma? What stays in the family, even though it may have happened 40, 50, 60 years ago? How is that played out day to day in current life? So we look at the effects on this story. For Poppy's family, for Aaron Paul's family, he's the accused who is imprisoned at San Quentin. And for Lizzie Kaplan's family, she plays twins, was their father that was murdered 20 years ago. So that's the setup for season one. And what should we expect for season two? Can you give us any highlights yet? Season two is really juicy. Kate Hudson is one of my favorite actresses. And during quarantine, you know, we're working on season two and- I just watched, I did a like a Kate Hudson marathon. I can't even remember what network it was on. And I watched like four of her movies in a row on a Sunday. And I sent a text to one of my producers, Reese Witherspoon, one of the producers of Truth Be Told. And I sent a text to them and I said, what about Kate Hudson? Would she do TV? And they're like on it. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that was the text response on it. And then I sent a text to Octavia and she was like, oh, I love her. And then, you know, talk to different people who have worked with her. And she has one of the best reputations, as does Octavia. So I got really lucky. And Aaron Paul and Lizzie Kaplan season one were just stellar professionals. And I thought that was going to be hard to beat. And then we did a Zoom with Kate and talked about the character, talked about the season and where it would go. And then she signed on with us and, and she was just wonderful. Mm-hmm. And they're really great together.
1: Kate. Oh, that's and awesome.
2: Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I can yeah. hardly wait for that. that sounds yeah. great. They play two old
1: girlfriends. Oh, cool. Oh, fun. Yeah. fun. <laughs> and I'm sure there's some twists and turns in there, too. Yes, a ton. So it's so amazing to hear about all your awesome success now. And and it's kind of funny, like thinking back to some of these stories we just got from some of your girlfriends
2: and I'm not going to tell the Winchell's donut story, but you know what that is. (laughs) I told that story to the head of Warner Brothers Television. And I was oh, i was there, I had a um, blind script deal with Warner Brothers and I went in to pitch the ideas that maybe I would write about. i would come up with ideas that I thought they, they would like rather than something that I was interested in and I wanted to explore as a writer. So they were fine, but there was no passion in them. And then she was just like, do you really want to write those, michelle And I was like yeah, I think this hospital drama could be good. And she was like, okay. And then she was like, well, let's talk. So then we just start talking about our past and then we start talking about up North. And she said, tell me about Alameda. And I said, I'd still have the same best friends from when I was you know, 14 years old. I met them as freshmen in home ec, which will age me because they don't even have home ec. <laughs> and then I said, they're so funny. And I just start talking about them. She was laughing so hard. And then at the end of the Winchell's Donut story, she said, there's your pilot that's your show, Alameda and Your Girlfriends. And I was like, now that is something I want to write. You know, of course, it, nothing came of it, but it was wonderful.
1: And I think that that's what's awesome, right? She, I love the fact that she's the head of television and what she's telling you is, yeah, yeah, these are fine. These stories are fine, but they're not you and they're not you know, digging into what you're actually passionate about. So I'd love to explore that a little bit with you. How do you find your really authentic and passionate voice and let that
2: really be be heard and, and frankly, eventually seen on TV? Well, you know, I think that everything that I'd written up until that point interested me in some way, whether or not it was personal or it was based on a family story. There was always a question at the center that I was curious about and, you know, you don't do that as much when you're on staff because you have to service the show that you're on. You know, the showrunners ideas about the show and where it's going. The story on the book is set in a small town in Illinois. So once we made Poppy Parnell the lead and Octavia came on board, then I was able to rebuild her story entirely because, one, the character wasn't black. And I needed to build a history specific to her. And then that's when I was able to draw on personal things, you know, moved it to the Bay Area. So there are all these Easter eggs to, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area. And then I used some of the family history for her history. So that was a way that kind of made the specificity of the show a draw, I hope. Mm, Absolutely, it is.
0: Something I would be really curious to hear you talk a little bit about is there's the part of your story that I came out of the womb knowing I wanted to be a writer, right? I have always wanted to do that. I've been willing to make financial trade-offs to do it and rent a room. And, and so there's this wonderful story about following your dream and scraping by and then being successful. And I'm curious, some of those steps along the way, which I'm sure it wasn't as perfect a straight line as as it's sounding like it is. But what were some of those moments for you that felt like, oh God, this is just so imperfect or, oh God, this is hard, that when you look back on, look at it and say, whew, I am so glad that happened because I just learned a ton.
2: Well, one of the big things was, you know, I had this romantic notion that once the books were on the shelf, then that was it. The door was open. I'd found the magic key to this kingdom. And then I'd go on and continue to be a novelist and write books. And the reality is, unless you really breakthrough, it's very, very hard to make a living as a novelist. You know, you go and you see some authors in airports. I think that when you get to the point where you're, you know, an airport book author, you're doing pretty good. But for, you know, mid-list writers, it's a, you know, royalty statements that come in and they will give you a nice treat, but they weren't not paying your bills. So after the second book, it was like, oh, my God, do I actually have to start all over again? And what am I going to do? And that's when I truly got an after-school job because, you know, there are two books on the shelf. I was like, what am I going to do if I present the books when I'm out looking for a job? Then they're going to know that my interest is split. And how do I do I Keep this off of my resume, even though it's a huge accomplishment, so that I could get the job. So there were all these things that felt like I was going back to square one. And a friend of mine said, I don't know anyone who watches more television than you. I don't think that person exists. Why haven't you thought about TV writing? And I was like, I don't know. It was always features or novels or short stories. So I wrote a spec SVU and then I wrote a spec pilot script about a family in. Charleston, South Carolina. And then I had a short story called A Best Friend Named Rick. And I used those three things to apply to the CBS New Television Writers Program. And that's still going. And it's a wonderful program. And people who are interested should look at all the networks and studios. They all have those programs. So I got into that. And um, it was a five-month program. We went once a week on Wednesday nights. There were about 12 of us writers. And by the end of that, I'd gotten staffed on Women's Murder Club, which was my first television job. And it lasted a single season and it was broken up by the strike. So then it was like, yay, I found the second magical key to the kingdom. Now I am here. This is great. I will make a living as a writer. And I think we were halfway through the season and the Writers Guild went on strike. And um, the show was shut down. Everything was shut down on the personal side, even though as awful as that was it actually ended up being a blessing because my mother was dying. And so us being on strike meant that I was able to go back to the Bay Area and be there with her. And she passed away and the strike ended probably a couple of weeks after that. And then I went back to work. We finished the season and the show wasn't picked up. So I was staffed on another show called Harper's Island that went for one season at CBS. And the reality of that was, I was in mourning and I should not have taken a job, but there's, you know, this fear that if you get off the hamster wheel, you can't get back on. But I feel as if, and I've said this to the showrunner of that show, that the woman that he met in the interview for that job never showed up again. I was just too sad to be in a collaborative all day environment. And I really left my colleagues to do the heavy lifting because I just, I was just grief stricken. And that show went a single season. I went on to Mercy, which is was a single season show at NBC, a hospital drama created by Liz Heldens, who had come from Friday Night Lights, which was one of my all time favorite television shows. So my meeting with her, I was pretty much a fangirl. What about this? And what about this episode and blah, blah, blah. And um, and went to that show for a year, also only on the air for a year. And after that is when I did the blind script deal with Warner Brothers then I was staffed on Justified and then Good Wife, where I stayed the longest for four years. And after Good Wife went out and um, sold Truth Be Told, my own show, and we're in season two now.
0: So one of the things that has come up with a lot of the people we've talked to, and it's something Ann and I have talked about as well, is how important it is to really acknowledge where you are in any given moment, in your case, mourning your mom yep. and or how important it is to just really be honest about where you are. And it's just, it's interesting to hear. I think it's a theme that runs through most people's lives. And at the same time, it's such a vulnerable thing to do, right? As you said, it's such a vulnerable place to be that if I back off, if I step away, what if I never get this opportunity again? But if I show up, I'm not really showing up as my
1: best.
2: Yeah. And it's it was tough because, you know, now there are nine thousand shows on the air. There are so many streaming services and so many networks and there are a lot more jobs than there were back then. And to be perfectly honest, most of the shows were operating where you have a black writer or you have an Asian writer or you have a woman and you have what you need. It wasn't just like it just, it was a little bit more about filling those slots. So they were really hard to come by. So, to one, be a woman and a Black woman, it's like, oh boy, is this train coming into this station again anytime soon? But, you know, about acknowledging where you are, yes, I was grief stricken and I was also really sick and I didn't know it. And so I was attributing all my symptoms and everything that was going on just to being sad. So it took a really long time for me to realize, whoa, something is going on here. And I'd actually come up to Alameda for a funeral from one of our classmates, high school classmates. And our girlfriends, who you got those quotes from, came to pick me up at the hotel. And I called them on the cell phone and said, something's wrong. And so they came upstairs into my hotel room and just lifting my arms to brush my hair winded me. And then we walked to the funeral and everyone was standing in the back in church. And I thought, I have to sit down, I can't stand up any longer. But there were all these little things that were actually huge. But I just thought, you know, my mom's gone. Of course I feel bad. I'm I feel like I'm gonna feel bad for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know. So there's something about what you're saying that your body, your mind, whatever it is, it will catch up to you when you're like hard headed about hearing what it's trying to tell you. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but it's, sometimes it's so hard when you're in those moments, right? Because as you yeah. said, keeping jobs that you were really interested in, really mourning your mom. So it's really hard in those moments to recognize that. And so just so we don't keep people on edge, how's your health now?
2: Oh, good. It was actually something that was easy to fix, but... Because I was, you know, ignoring it or not really registering it as a problem, it created other problems, but it was, you know, it was all well and good, but it did force me to take that time off. So it was like, you didn't want to take the time off, but yeah, you're gonna. <laughs> the body knows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're about to. Right. That moment where it's
0: like, you think you're in charge? Uh-uh. Let me tell you, yeah. like, <laughs> me, your body is yeah. in charge.
2: Yes. Here's a reminder. But, you know, and it was good and I needed it. And then, you know, I went back to work in a much, much, much better place. They laughed and they used to call me a cat because every day at 3.30, the sun would move to one part of the writer's room that this where it was really intense on this one white chair near the window and like clockwork every day at 3.25, I'd go and- curl up in that chair with a blanket with the sun beaming down on me it was like oh my god and they would go there she goes there's the cat (laughs) and I was actually that fatigue and that whole thing was actually part of me being ill and I didn't know it. And they just all like attributed to, you know, my little quirk. Yeah.
1: To Sherry's point, right. We, we get all these little signs, but sometimes we're, we're so fixated on, but I have to show up and I have to show up in a certain way. And not only am I a woman, but I'm a black woman. and I'm in a business that isn't always embracing of black women. Right. And so it's almost like we, we go through this process of trying to, almost be what somebody else expects us to be, right? Yeah. And so I'm curious, like when you did get healthy and you were able to to come back to work, like what you said, after you took care of yourself, did that change things for you? Did it change the way you operate or think about the way that you show up or
2: take care of yourself? It really did dramatically. One of the things is like, uh, my husband Malcolm is also a uh, writer and television writer. He created Falcon and Winter Soldier this year Mm -hmm. and um, Hip Hop Uncovered, which is on Hulu. Mm And he goes on the roller coaster ride emotionally of whatever is going on. And I'm so he says, you're chill to the point of being comatose. How are you not upset? Because <laughs> 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 I'm like, oh, I don't know, what's supposed to happen's gonna happen. And I think it was that experience of losing my mom, making decisions that weren't in my best interest in pursuit of this. And at the end of it, she was still gone. And it was like, nope. And I'll get out of situations fairly quickly if I feel like they're not a good match. Mm. So if there's something that I sign on for and then I start to get a feeling, I'll leave it. Mm. And one of her biggest lessons was a really simple thing she said when I was stressing and spinning off the planet about something. She said, you can always change your mind. And I was like, Mm. that is not profound, but that's (laughs) so profound. I can change my mind. She was like, what's gonna happen if you change your mind? And I'm like, well, someone might think this. And she was just like, what someone else thinks about you is none of your fucking business. Uh-huh. Excuse my French. <laughs> I was like, wow, yeah, I could change my mind if they don't like it. That doesn't matter. <laughs> right. and it was like, it was so freeing. It was so incredibly freeing. And so that's sort of the approach now. And it's worked for and against me sometimes, you know, one of the agencies that I was with years ago, I would say no to job offers that came my way because I had intel about those rooms being difficult or those showrunners being abusive or it just being a really nasty soul killing place. And as a young writer, they just could not believe that I was turning down these jobs. And I remember without naming names that I got a call on the on a Sunday from my whole team and That's unusual. It was my my lawyer, my agent, my manager, all on this phone call. And they really wanted to talk about why I was turning down the specific job. And I said, that person is a jerk. We know that they're a jerk. It's like, and it's a horrible, abusive room. There's one thing if you take a job and then you're surprised, like, oh, my God, I didn't know this was happening. But I had enough intel to know. And it was also a show where they had a hard time staffing these rooms Mm -hmm. because of this, you know, these people that were in charge. And it was great money and it was a hit show and it was going to have legs. And I was a baby writer still, which is what they call lower level writers. And it made no sense to them that I was making this decision, but I stuck to my guns. And then there were two more offers that came my way that season and I turned them down also. And they were just done with me. And it actually ended up with me leaving the agency because the following season, My manager asked, can you please let me know what shows you're submitting Michelle for? Because I don't want to double up. And they said, oh, we we aren't submitting her this year. We didn't we didn't she didn't have a new writing sample and we didn't think she was serious. And so what they meant was they didn't think I was serious about being in TV because they were used to personalities that would take any and everything. But I also entered the business a little bit older and I'd also, you know, been through losing my mom and I was just like, I'm going to do it the way I want to do it, or we're not doing it. And so that was the biggest lesson that came out of all of that, I think.
1: What an amazing lesson. I mean, truly. And what a awesome sort of North Star guiding light as well. So, you know, through your work, but also, I mean, I just wrote down, right? What someone else thinks about you is none of your business. <laughs>
2: so profound. That's amazing. Right. Cause we can't, get it's so that. simple, right? right? It's so simple. And that's like, she was the, she was just the master of that. She would just cut to the quick with this really sort of kind of down home saying that just put everything in line. And it was like, I don't know why you're upset about that Shell. That's none of your business. They have every right to think anything they want about you, but what does that have to do with you? What does that have to do with you sitting there making your breakfast, or going to work, or (laughs) what does that have to do with what you're doing? That is someone else's business. And it was really, you know, helpful going forward. I don't read press or reviews. I don't do any of that. I'm not too much on social media. It's just like, you know, one private little IG account that's all interior designers and table settings and animals. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's, you know, it's nice stuff. And it's, it's a safe place to be, and I think it's a way that you kind of guard yourself, your spirituality, and your creativity, frankly. So, I want
0: to go back for a second to your comments about not being willing to take jobs that were going to be toxic or abusive or not right for you and how often this plays out in so many industries, right? And for so many people, this idea of, I have to say yes right? Or I won't get another opportunity. Or what will other people think? Will anybody pick me again? And I love that you had both things present of being completely committed to your craft, completely committed to this career, being willing to do much of what it would take, but not willing to do anything it would take.
2: Early in my career, when we were so broke, like broke as church mice, and I left a job that was supporting us pretty decently in our little crappy apartment to take a job with someone who had a big reputation in this town. And it was a big get to get this job. And I'd read this person's book and was so excited about them. And they had a really bad reputation, but being from like Alameda where everything was really cut and dry to me, it was just, it was what it was. This, you know, the streets went North and South and East and West and they didn't double around on each other. Like (laughs) they do in LA. It was just all straightforward. And so I thought, ah, no one could be that bad. And, the first day of work, the very first day of work, which started at 730 in the morning, I was the person's third assistant. And at 745, the abuse started. I mean, like the cursing and the screaming and you're an idiot. And I'm like, how would she know I was an idiot? I've been here 10 minutes. <laughs> 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 it would it take you an hour to know if I was an idiot? <laughs> so, I didn't
1: and think like, got yet.
2: <laughs> <laughs> And then the curse words got real like worse. And I was just like a deer in headlights sitting there. Cause there was the Alameda girl part of me. And you know, that it was just like, Oh, are we about to fight? Is that what this? <laughs> is that what this means? <laughs> Who talks to someone like this and it doesn't, it, and blows. What is happening? So I was just like, this is crazy. And I, so I didn't respond cause I was actually in shock. And So she was just like, oh, so she really is stupid. She can't even talk, standing there at my desk saying these things. And then she went back into her office. I try not to say gender, but now we're there. (laughs) She went back into her office and the first assistant went in there to kind of smooth things over. And in her loud rage about me that I could hear coming from her office, she called me the C-word. And I thought, wow, this is wild. So I said, hey, I'm going to the bathroom. And then I went downstairs and this is how long ago it was. I got on the payphone and I called my mom <laughs> and I said, this is what just happened. And I'm telling her all of it. And I said, I don't have a job. Oh, my God, I can't go back to my other job. What am I going to do? And so she said, now, tell me again what happened. And I walked her through the whole morning and she said, do you have your purse? And I said, yeah, she goes, get to step in. And I was like, all I need and I was gone and I just left. And I had I kind of knew because when I left to go, I put the key in the desk. Mm. I left and I went home. And so by the time I got home, I took the bus because this was the you know the broke trying to make it, Days. <laughs> and I took the bus and I come walking in and at one o'clock and Malcolm's like, What's going on? And I told him and he was like, and you left. And he was like, Gangster.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like, that's my mom. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, then, and then they called and they were like, Michelle, did you leave? And I said, yeah, keys in the top drawer. And they were like, what, well, what's going on? I'm like, yeah, that's not job for me. She could find someone else to talk to and treat like trash. Oh, yeah. And that was it. And I, and then I could not, And then I did not have a job for like four months, but I didn't regret walking out of that. So it's a little bit like, when you have the choice and you can make the choice, make it. Yeah. And sometimes yes. even if you don't have the choice for your own sanity and health, make it anyway.
1: I think that's right. And there are times when we think we don't have the choice when we actually do. And somehow you still ate and somehow you still paid the rent and somehow you still were able to pay for the bus or whatever. Right. Yeah. But I love that it was your mom who said, just get to step in right? It's just like, that's amazing. And there's so much of your story that's wrapped up with your mom and the wisdom and the, like you called it simple, but I, I just think super profound. Some of the things that she said to you and I hope this isn't a painful question, but I'm so curious now, she really seemed like somebody that grounded you and, and helped you even when you, like you knew you left the key in the desk, like you knew, but you still needed your mom to kind of give you that little nudge. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what you do now in order to give yourself that little nudge when you need it or to help ground yourself back into those Alameda roots or whatever. So do you have practices
2: or tools or people in your life that help you with that now? Yes, those those same girls oh, yeah. that I met when I was 14, my Alameda girls that I call the Cadillac girls, because you know we all we all <laughs> cruise around Cadillac. Old Cadillac. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it fit what, nine of us comfortably. It was an old school caddy. Yeah, the Cadillac girls keep me grounded. And when we were in high school, you know how I used to pass notes like behind you with a piece of paper? So that's what I call the text chain. And it goes all day long. And it's like, you know, we're always talking. And I'm telling them a funny story or something upsetting, you know, at my mom's funeral, when I walked out of the doors of the church, those were the first faces that I saw. They were all in the car and they were like, let's get out of here. You know what I mean? Like they were just picking me up from this thing. So my sisters, my husband, and we've stayed really grounded because Malcolm and I are super public people and we're not into the party scene. We're not in any of that. So it's a little bit easier for us to stay grounded. We've had the same friends, you know, we have our dogs who we spoil ridiculously and we both like writing and we both like working. So that takes up a lot of our time and it helps keep a lot of the nonsense at bay. And, you know, there were lessons that we learned when we first got here that we never forgot when we were broke and about how, a friend said something the other day that was so great and so funny. Another friend was raging about some indignity, you know, visited upon her by Hollywood, capital letters. And she was like, and, blah, 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 and she's going on. And he said, Hollywood's undefeated. Just remember that. <laughs> it's so funny and it's so true. So you can beat your head against the wall if you want, but it is what it is in a lot of ways. And we learned that really, really early on when we first moved to town. And Malcolm and I are broke aspiring writers. Like I said, catching the bus everywhere. And we'd gone to a comedy show and it was Dave Chappelle. Wow. Back in the day. Yeah. Back in the day before he was famous. And it was it was such a fun night. And we were randomly there. But he's trying out new material at like one o'clock in the morning. And Tupac comes in with Snoop. Oh, my God. And, they're, and, yeah, and the dog pound and their whole entourage. And they sit down at the tables. And Malcolm and I are like, that's Tupac, that's Snoop. Like we're trying to, you know, not geek out, but we're just sitting there. And one of the guys of the dog pound, Chappelle was smoking on stage. And one of the guys from the dog pound said, Hey, man, can you put that cigarette out (laughs) from the audience? And Dave Chappelle goes, What? A drive-by shooter is worried about secondhand smoke. So bad. We could not stop laughing. It was just like off the top of his head. And as we're walking outside, you know, we're out waiting for a taxi or whatever else. And we're laughing about that particular line. And a guy came up to us and he, he heard us talking about, he started laughing too. And I recognized him immediately. And he was an actor whose picture I used to have on my wall in junior high. And he hadn't worked in years. And in just that casual conversation, We said that we were writers. Neither of us had done anything, but we were aspiring writers. We just didn't say aspiring. And he started an impromptu audition for us at two o'clock in the morning on Sunset Boulevard on the sidewalk. And it was so horrifying to both of us because there was a level of desperation in it and there was nothing that we could do to help him. We could barely help ourselves. We were waiting on a taxi that we probably would have had to get out of a mile from our <laughs> house and walked. <laughs> to <last horse>. <laughs> yes, and, um, and it was so sobering and it was so shocking. And um, we've never forgotten it. It's been like, you know, 25 years. Okay. So that was, a that became like a third rail for us. That okay. became part of what we didn't want to do when it felt like we were at the point where it wasn't going to work for us anymore, it was over or it wasn't going to happen, that we just bow out gracefully. And you see that so much that there's a constant reminder. So there's a way that we just keep our heads down mm. and just try to do the work and not try to be involved in any of the, the fanciness that could drive you crazy. Yeah.
1: Wow. So I want to just hearken back to that little third grader and her brown paper. <laughs> stapled into little books and, and her captive audience of other third graders. And I'm just so curious if, if there's anything you could whisper in her ear, any advice or anything you could share with her, would you, would you
2: say something to her? I would just say, keep going because even the mistakes became lessons. Mm-hmm. And even if they were hard and they were painful, I think that it would be less about career and personal life. Like this is so corny but I would tell her, mm, everybody before you meet Malcolm is a waste of your time. Mm, mm. I love that. I, I would I would stay there. Yeah. And when I met him, I didn't know that was going to be the one my mom knew. Did she? My mom said that she knew from when I called her after I met him because she said my voice was different on the phone. And I didn't know. It took me like a year to catch up. Mm-hmm. But she knew. I would just tell little shell just like, you know. Yes, keep moving past all of the the other people. (laughs) Well,
0: it sounds like you've had a few synchronicity moments in your life, one of them meeting Malcolm and one of them, your friend saying, I don't know anybody who watches as much TV as you. Have you considered TV? And so it sounds like there's been a little magic at work in addition to your perseverance and your commitment and your willingness not to settle for being treated badly, right? And to trust that... There was a place for you in this world, which is a pretty awesome story.
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's like sometimes it's been hard, and you know, and there have been profound moments of giving up. I think the last story I'll tell that it's about kind of being at the crossroads of giving up when it was after the second novel was published and it didn't do as well as the first and the royalty statements weren't as good. And I was trying to figure out what to do next. And I said... I I don't know, should I just give up writing? Does this mean that I go back to school? Do I become a teacher? What do I do? How's this going to work? And my mom called me and woke me up at at about seven o'clock in the morning. And I said, what's going on? Why are you calling so early? And she goes, oh, I just wanted to see what you were doing today. And I said, oh, I don't know. And I started off complaining again. You know, I was off on a a tangent of complaining. And she goes, well, let me call you back. And so I hung up and I went back to sleep. Five hours later, I hear a knock at my door and I go downstairs and my mom had driven from Northern California and knocked on the door. And she had called me that early to see if I was going to be home all day. And so she hung up at seven. She was already packed and dressed. She drove all the way to like knocked on my door unexpectedly. I opened it. I was like, mommy, what are you doing here? And she, and she threw her purse down on the table when you walked in my door. And she said, I've had it with you. Let me tell you something. If you're going to be a writer, be a writer. Hmm. If you're about to give up, I don't want you ever to mention the word writer to me or anybody else in the family ever again. You either live by your dream or you put us all out of your misery, but enough is enough. You need to get your shit together. This is not the Michelle that I know. And I don't know who this person is, but I've had enough of her. You know, this took five hours. She got down there. I'm sobbing and everything else and being my dramatic late 20s self. And then she's, you know, I told her about it. She's like, now, what are you afraid of? What do you want to do? So we talked about it. And by the time I settled down and decided, no, I wasn't giving up writing, I wasn't going to move back home, all of those things. And then I said, okay, well, Do you want to go to dinner? She goes, no, I'm leaving. I'm seeing BB King in San Francisco tonight. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Oh,
0: but what a gift.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And I called my sisters and I was like, mommy just drove all the way out here to tell me off. And then she just went home. (laughs) Oh, we all still crack up about that. You know, she's been gone since 2008, but we laugh all the time about her and those stories. My sisters are like, remember that time mom drove five hours, (laughs) 10 hours round trip. (laughs) (laughs) She had to get back to see BB King.
1: (laughs) Oh my God. That is amazing. And it so goes back to one of the very first statements from from our friend, Stacy, who said there was no plan B. And your mom knew that, right? Like she knew there wasn't truly a plan B because this was really what you were in alignment, what you were put on this earth to do. And thank God you got that message because we are all so blessed for it now with the amazing work that you're putting out in the world. I think by the time this comes out, the second season of Truth Be Told will almost be out. So stay tuned for our listeners for that. Michelle, it has been just such a delight. I just can't, Sherry. I don't think you and I have had a, a session where we've laughed so hard. <laughs> this definitely oh, ranks
0: as the number one laugh session for sure. It's
1: amazing.
2: <laughs> oh, uh, <okay>. so good. <laughs> That's been the common denominator of our friendship <laughs> all these days. So true. Yeah. So for those of you, uh, for those of you listening, I hope
1: you're laughing wherever you're listening as well. And, and that will be it for us for today. Thank you so much for joining us. And please join us next time on Flowing East and West, The Perfectly Imperfect Journey to a Fulfilled Life.